Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the 4 Press Podcast presented by GolfWeek.com. I'm your host, David Dusak, and this week my guest is Adam Shupat. Adam is a writer and reporter with Golf Week, GolfWeek.com, as well as USA Today. And last week he was cruising around the 17-mile drive in Monterey, California, covering the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, probably with a big glass of red wine in hand most of the time. And in the podcast you're about to hear, he and I talk about Nick Taylor's win, as well as Phil Mickelson playing really well but coming up short in his attempt win for the sixth time at Pebble Beach. We also looked at Mickelson's outlook for the rest of 2020, and we talked about a really important week for Jason Day last week at Pebble. And then we looked ahead to the Genesis Invitational, which takes place this week at Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles, and what we're expecting from Tiger Woods, who is returning to action. Tiger's never won at Riviera, but if he does win this week, he will break the PGA Tour's all-time wins record at the same venue where he played his first PGA Tour event when he was just 16 years old. Hold on, you're going to definitely want to listen to this. Get stronger, hit longer, and end pain with Golf Forever. Created by Justin Leonard and co-author of the Younger Next Year Back Book, Dr. Jeremy James, Golf Forever is the take-anywhere online golf fitness program that helps you build a body prime for golf. It's simple, safe, and it works. At home, in the gym, on the golf course, Golf Forever's easy-to-follow exercises, warm-up routines, and course management videos will help you play your best pain-free. Sign up today at GolfForever.com and use promo code GOLFWEEK for a free 14-day trial. So fresh off of a lovely, I'm sure, flight from the West Coast to the East Coast, I'd like to welcome Adam Shupak back to the 4Press Podcast. How you doing, buddy? I'm okay. You know, I could use a little nap or two, maybe, maybe later this afternoon, but uh, I'll be all right. Couldn't we all? I mean, I'm chasing after my two kids. My wife's away on business, so uh, I'm sort of playing single dad for the week, and uh, I'm exhausted. I didn't fly cross country. Are you an aisle man, or are you a window guy? I'm an aisle guy. I like to be able to stretch my legs and get up when I... I feel claustrophobic even even in the window seat. I, I'm the same but, way. I've I, I've never had a full on like panic attack. I've seen people who have, and it's not pretty. I had one like two years ago where I was on a window that I didn't use to mind, but the two people fell asleep next to me on a flight. I think I was going just to like Miami or to Orlando or something like that from New York, and it, it was like I, the fact that like I couldn't move, couldn't get out. I'm six foot four, so now all of a sudden I'm feeling crammed in there. It was the worst like hour and a half until they woke up and I could just stand up that I can possibly remember. And, uh, yeah, I've been an aisle guy most of the time, but now it's, it's, it's a, it's a deal breaker borderline for me that I'm not in an aisle. It's, uh, I, I can't even handle it. What do you have any tricks to try and get to sleep? Cause you said to me off air, you actually sleep on red eyes. I can't sleep on planes. What do you do? Drink a lot. I'm just a fantastic sleeper in, in general. <laughs> I, I have no issues, uh, with that. Probably it's usually because I'm so sleep deprived to begin with that I don't have any trouble falling asleep. But uh, yeah, I, I actually the one I do feel that on the uh, on the red eye, I, I I do sort of like the window because you can lean and fall asleep a little bit more against against the side of the airplane there. And then also what happened to me on this particular flight, the guy in the middle woke me up because he had to go to the bathroom at mm. like you know three in the morning, and then I had trouble getting back to sleep right away. Yeah, it's I, I get it. You got to do what you got to do. And in that case, you got to take one for the team, but you don't have to like it. I, I just have found that I don't do too many red eyes anymore. I've done them. I usually do one or two a year. Um, by the time, like if you do get up in the middle of the night, you realize that the plane has become basically like a flying Greyhound bus. It's disgusting. I mean, people take their <laughs> shoes off. People are just like lounging in all kinds of positions. It's not a pretty sight. And to think that the crew members have to see that probably a couple times a week. I don't know what the schedule is for people flying back and forth, but it, it can't be good. It's It's got to be absolutely disgusting. You 
you took the red eye back because and we're going to get to the action at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am, which you were out there for Golf Week covering and, and wrote about on GolfWeek.com. But you had a chance to stick around in San Francisco, which I love New York, and I'll always have the 718 Brooklyn stuff in my blood, but I could move to San Francisco today. I, that, that, that is one of the great cities of the world. It's fantastic. Great golf. You played Harding Park, you creep. So uh, <laughs> tell me about it. What was it like? Well... I think it's I think it's going to be a cool venue. I, I love when they when they take major championships to municipal golf courses, places that you know the average Joe can you know put down their fork over their money and get to play and say I you know I played the same holes as the number one guy in the world. I and mean, there's a couple holes that I, I I feel like there will be some guys wishing that they made a couple putts like I did yesterday. Uh, I had it going on the back nine. The front nine was ugly. We won't talk about that. Uh, but it, it's uh, I, I think that there's potential for some low scoring. Uh, the winner is definitely going to drive the ball well because they I played the course actually for the first time ever uh, coming out to the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach in June. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you, I probably hit four drives yesterday that would have been in the fairway in June that no longer in the fairway that was in some juicy already some pretty juicy rough. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to grow, get thicker. Kerry uh, Haig was out there a few months back and narrowed the fairways. I was told anywhere from 40 to 60%. Wow. And I mean, they're, they're, they're runways and, and it's, I, I don't think it's an overly difficult course, uh, especially for the best in the world. It, it, it's a course, you know, you don't lose a lot of golf balls. There's, there's there really aren't any water hazards to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, you know, the greens, I think it will be interesting. You know, they're they're letting people play until about two weeks before the major, and you know they they had a top dressing on. They just top dressed the greens yesterday, so they were really slow. But uh, these greens, I think, will be pretty pockmarked. It'll be interesting to see how the players respond. I mean, this is a municipal golf course, mm-hmm. and it takes in on a lot of rounds, uh, or you know, even without the the hype and and you know popularity that it's going to gain from having a major championship. So I, I think I think that will be a, a bit of a factor to hear how the players, you know, they're pretty picky about that sort of thing. That's pretty um, interesting because they had the same thing last year, shoot, when we were at Beth Page for the PGA Championship, and I had a chance to go to Beth Page. Um, I want to say about three weeks before the tournament started, and play had just finished. I think that they 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 stopped letting people go on, and that's again uh, a golf course that's owned by the in that case the state of New York owns Beth Page State Park. And they stopped letting people on the black course. They were still on the green and the red um, and playing there. But I want to say it was about two or three weeks. And same thing. Pinched fairways. Rough was juicy. That's a bigger track. I mean, that's just a really right. big ballpark. And the premium on driving, is it sort of almost goes without saying when you're playing at that venue. Tactically, you said that they've, they've thinned in the fairways. They've, they've, the rough is already lush. Um, San Francisco is, is it almost always seems like it's great conditions, um, for, for growing grass and for the turf and all that kind of stuff. So that's not surprising that the, the course is healthy. What, what type of player though, aside from somebody who drives it well, do you think now having played the golf course, do you think will, will maybe have an advantage this year at the PGA? You know, I think it's a pretty, I, I think it, it reminds me a little bit of, TPC Sawgrass in the in the sense that I think you have to work it both ways off the tee and into into the holes. It is really well designed in that respect, and I think it also like like you, we just were saying, it's not that long. Like no. it's not Beth Page Black long. So I think it could be. I think it's pretty pretty fair to you know different. It could be a short hitter. It could be a long hitter. But it's going to be someone who drives it really well, and and um, I, I don't think the greens are that tricky. So, um, I, I but I, I it would not shock me if someone shoots like a sixty three one day. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, because I think if if you str- if you're on, I think you could I think it's you could tear it up. There's there's a couple short par fours. Um, the, the the par threes aren't overly long. Answers one, they'll stretch to about two forty. There, there is a back tee. There's, they, they've turned two par fives into par fours. Um, that won't even be that long for for these guys. They'll probably still be hitting seven iron in as a par four. 
Um, well, coming off of a week where the distance report was released a week ago, we're recording this um, on Tuesday, the February the 11th, and it was a week ago today that the USG and the RNA released um, the findings of their distance report. And, you know, one of the big things that comes out of that is that they want the value of distance to be decreased, or certainly they don't want the trend that has been established now to for the distance to increase any, any more than it is. Because they want to bring versatility and lots of shot making back into the game, that the value of distance has, has taken over and removed some of the skill in the in the eyes of the USG and the RNA from the game. So it sounds like, to some degree, that that's the kind of PGA Championship we're going to have, where it's yeah, being long off the tee is always great, but you're going to have right. to be able to work the ball. You're going to have to hit a lot of shots. What were guys talking about or not talking about with regard to the distance report when you were at a pebble? You know, it, it wasn't as big a conversation piece as I thought it was going to be. I felt it was more something um, that had to, that I had to force and bring up and mm -hmm. and less of guys discussing or a lot of back and forth. And, and it really did feel like uh, very few players had taken the time to actually read it. I think in their minds, it's so far off that uh, that it, it you know, they were too busy with with everything else going on in their worlds, you know. I thought Dustin Johnson's line was pretty funny. Yeah. He said he looked he he looked at the email how long it was and he said not for me. <laughs> Shocker <on>. there. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, over, it was what I really found was some kind of mixed, really mixed uh, responses across the board of of some guys thinking this is great and 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 you know good for the USGA to finally be doing something and others feeling like why are they bothering to do this this you know. Um, this this isn't they're they're not the right people to be doing this and, and you know well Mickelson and, and certainly that, came out and said basically that you know how many sports yes. do the professionals how many other sports can you think of where the professionals are being governed and the rules are established by the amateurs and that is uh that swipe will certainly not go unnoticed in <laughs> both uh, St Andrews Scotland as well as Far Hills New Jersey um, and and he's said things and other people have put that idea out there before yeah, usually a, with regard to widely held sentiment yeah usually more. with regard to the setup of u.s opens is is where a lot of times you you, you hear that kind of sentiment but um i was surprised i, I guess i really wasn't surprised Shoop, that so much of the conversation seems to be about how distance is related to um the elite game i mean the the report talks about that at length that there's a problem at the elite level specifically the elite men's level where they can hit the ball so far that golf courses have gotten so big um, in sort of a reaction to that, but they haven't been able to keep up enough and, and guys can basically out hit the ballpark and, and effectively shoot scores and be successful without the full range of skills that the USGA and the RNA say that the golf is supposed to test. Um, but at the same time, and this is where I, I was really surprised having gone through now just about all of the footnotes I haven't finished and there's 56 different reports that go into the main ones. I'm sort of working my way through the backlog of those now. Um, but the argument that they put forth about the the skill being taken away by distance, I, I get that. And a lot of people have been talking about that for a long time. But the fact that they haven't been able to change the narrative of this argument, they being USG and the RNA, haven't been able to change the narrative of the argument to, to have it focus more on the environmental impact of the game and the cost at the local level of maintaining larger golf courses, like your municipal golf courses, like, for example, a, a place like Harding Park that's owned by, if I'm not mistaken, the city of San Francisco. Well, every time that they have to lengthen that golf course to accommodate professional events, big hitters, all that kind of stuff, it costs the taxpayers of San Francisco, California, more money. It costs them more money in water. It costs them more money in chemicals to, to put on that golf course to keep it fertilized and fungicides and pesticides. It costs more in how much you're going to pay the workers to, to maintain the course, you know, the, the, the staff. All those things add up. And I, don't, I can't think of anybody that's, that's a big advocate of like, we want more chemicals on our golf courses. We want to use even right. more water on our golf courses. No one thinks that. The, the, the challenge for them has been to sort of change the way that this argument is, is going forward to, to not focus exclusively on the competitive angle of the PGA Tour and the European Tour and the Corn Ferry. Um, they haven't done that. So, so much of the focus has been on 
well, why why are they changing these rules now about distance? Why do they want to bring it in now? Why didn't they do it 15 years ago? Um, and that's, you know, they, their, their argument is, well, it's we've now reached this point and society's reached a point where from an environmental standpoint, like we don't like certain things. We don't, we want to stop these trends. But w- were you surprised that the guys didn't read it? Were you surprised that, that sort of the way that this conversation has played out so far has been about the competition stuff or what, what is your own personal take on, on this sort of whole debate? Well, I think I think the players are going to look at it from their own personal perspective and how it's going to affect them. The one guy who I thought was was saying a lot of what you just said and and more of a selfless uh, take was Padraig Harrington. Really looked at the bigger picture of what does this mean to to, to golf courses and and how do we how are we going to is this an unsustainable situation if we keep stretching courses like rubber like they're rubber bands and and you just can't keep you can't just keep doing it and and the expense and the as water becomes more precious commodity and and all these things uh i i think you know that he was the one guy who was looking at the bigger picture and then he you know he was very bold comments saying that um you know he felt that they should roll the ball back and kind of reset the rules and his opinion was, well, I'm a Titleist guy. Titleist makes the best ball, and Titleist will continue to make the best ball if they start over. Which, you know, I think I don't, I don't know if uh, if if uh, the cushion of people would like to uh, <laughs> have have a, a, a new playing field. I think they're pretty happy with the one as it is. Sure. No. Absolutely. It's. I, I think it's it's admirable that that he's taking the big picture view. Um, it's understandable that every golfer professionals and recreational players alike look at this as like, well, what does this mean for me? Um, for those of you out there who are regular players and not necessarily tour pros, which I would assume is probably everybody, um, for you, probably for the next five to 10 years, this whole thing means absolutely positively nothing. Because even if a change is going to come down the pipe that relates to golf clubs or golf balls, we're not going to know what that change might be um, for probably a year to 18 months. And then even the proposed change gets bannered back and forth. We talked about it on the podcast last week. Um, you know, the whole idea of this concept of the Vancouver Protocol, um, you know, and all these different things, which basically means that everybody's going to go back and forth to get the definitions down, to get the exact changes down. And then there's going to be another waiting period when the manufacturers actually go out and make the stuff and start producing the stuff. So in the grand scheme of things, nothing is going to happen and nothing is going to change to shoot your point, certainly at the at the recreational level, but also at the at the elite level, for years to come, it's just this the first little sort of salvo in the in the debate going back and forth. It's a talking point at this point, and not much more than that. Another talking point that I was sort of thinking of when I heard that you were playing Harding Park is the best golf course, the the basically the best city in the United States for people who love golf and golf courses. San Francisco is a blast. I, like I said, I could move to San Francisco tomorrow when you've got places um, like San Francisco Golf Club, Olympic, the Cal Club. If you go down the road just a little bit, Pastiempo is such a treat. Have you ever played Pastiempo? Love it. So good. It's amazing. Pebble Beach, Cypress, Spyglass, Monterey Peninsula, and numerous courses I'm sure that that I don't know. I've played Mayakama if you go north up towards yeah. Napa, which is also another Jack Nicholas oh. golf course, which is great. You okay there? Listen to you. I, I played one. I played one. I don't know. If, have you been to Meadow, the Meadow Club? No. So good. The first Alistair McKenzie course built in the U.S. I love that. I played that also when I before the U.S. Open last June. And Do you work for a living or do you just basically go from one junket to another? Listen to you. Well. I, I, one of my one of my other uh, side gigs is uh, NCGA golf editor, so you know that those are my people there out. I gotta <laughs> I gotta represent. <laughs> well, your your other people that you represent are, for example, and this is where I think that it gets trumped is New York, and I want your sort of feedback on this. But if you if you think of like a ninety or hundred mile circle around Midtown Manhattan, you get all the stuff in Westchester County. So now you're talking Wingfoot, Quaker Ridge, Old Oaks, um, all that sort of yumminess. Then you get into northern New Jersey, Somerset Hills, Baltus Rawl, um, all, all of those guys. Um, then you head out onto Long Island 
and it's about as blue blood heavyweight as it's going to get. I mean, Beth Page, we've talked about Garden City, Friars Head, National, Sabonic, Shinnecock, Maidstone, Montauk Downs, Piping Rock, The Creek. Um, I, I think New York is the winner. Do you do you disagree or do you want to throw out somebody, some other city? You know, I, 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 I actually wrote a piece saying New York's underrated because they have as a state because they have so much like the, the 30th best golf course i think in the state of new york probably would be um number one in a lot of states that, that's how good the golf is in in the state overall I, I think philadelphia and chicago are are probably the two other cities that jump to mind and then you know you could say the pinehurst area also yeah if you're uh, if you're gonna if you're gonna say the pine barrens and such like that and, and that area yeah. Is, is one thing, and then you get down to Pinehurst, Mid Pines, and, and all that. Um, it's it's a pretty special stuff. Pine Barrens, I'm sorry, being in, in southern New Jersey. But, um, yeah, Pinehurst is pretty good in that whole area. North Carolina's got some really good golf, but I just think, boy, it's, it's tough to say. What are your thoughts about Los Angeles golf? You know, I'm not – in Riviera is, is where they're playing this week. The Genesis is outstanding. Love that. Los Angeles Country Club, uh, you know, the North is where they're going to have a, a U.S. Open. Uh, the Olympics are going to use that golf course too. Isn't, isn't the when the Olympics comes to Los Angeles? Aren't they? I think they're playing it at LACC. I think I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it, it, I was thinking maybe Riv, but you you might be right. Um, and then, but but there isn't much. Well, the public golf. There's some good. There's some quality public golf, but nothing. Nothing like uh, nothing like New York or, or, or San Francisco, I, I would say. I, I don't think it quite compares. It's um, it's a it's it a pretty first off. world problem. <laughs> Any yeah, of these yeah. places, I mean, we're really it's it, we're not making friends when we sort of say yeah, that. Like, you know, I mean, I'm leaving out leaving out Bel Air and, and some others. There's some other really good Bel Air and Sherwood some and good, and some of the yeah. other places. It, to to me, there are so many places in New York. And in the in the, in the tri-state area that that get no name recognition whatsoever. People outside of the area don't know them. Um, if you, for example, say someplace like the Creek, to most golfers, they have no idea what you're talking about, and it's unbelievable. Um, people have heard of some of these places and not been to them, but they 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 know about them. But then um, again, like I sort of dropped the name of Old Oaks Country Club of Purchase. Those are two adjacent properties that are going to be hosting U.S. Open sectional qualifying uh, in June. And they go back and forth between there for three years, and then they go down to Canoebrook, where we have had sectional qualifying for the last three years. Um, it's a rotating sort of, uh, of a schedule. Canoebrook is amazing, um, 36 holes there in New Jersey. But it's, I, I love the little out-of-the-way gems that you pick up, like spots that I'm, I've been down here for going on three decades, and I'm still trying to pick off places um, that they're just they're just unbelievable. Like you just walk into these places. Speaking of unbelievable, Nick Taylor. Let's get on to and talk a little bit about the AT and T yeah. Pebble Beach Pro Am. At the beginning of the day, um, as our co coworker and friend Steve Demeglio wrote, who would you have taken? You know, Mickelson, the the already Hall of Famer. Uh, who's won on the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am five times. You take him off by one shot behind Taylor. Jason Day, a former world number one. Or Nick Taylor, who coming into this event was ranked 229 in the world and hadn't won since his rookie season in 2014. You walked with Nick Taylor. What, what did you see on Sunday? Oh, this guy was just nails. I, I was so impressed with how he played. There were There were a lot of kind of turning point moments on the front nine very early in this where, uh, I, I felt like Phil Mickelson could have, uh, was going to pull ahead. And, and one of them was on the, was on the fourth tee where Phil got up to the fourth tee and told, uh, Nick Taylor, you know, he had the honors said, I'm, I'm going for the green. So if you want to lay up, uh, <laughs> feel free to go, feel free to tee off whenever you want. Cause there is going to be a wait. It was going to be a wait for the group ahead. And, and I felt like it was, you know, it was this type of situation where, you know that was the a polite and a, the thing you do, but there also felt like a little bit of gamesmanship. Oh, it was a power move for sure. Well. Come on, that was a power <laughs> yeah. move for sure. <laughs> and uh, and he and Nick Taylor laid up, and uh, you know Phil got you know was able you know, drove into the 
front greenside bunker and, and blasted out to about seven feet and definitely had the advantage. And Nick Taylor poured it in for birdie before he got a chance to make it. And then, and then, uh, and then Phil misses. So, um, you know, that, that gave him, that gave him, uh, the lead again. And then the next hole he makes, an, you know, fills in tight and, and before, before Phil can, can tie things up another birdie from Nick Taylor. And then, and then on the, the sixth hole was huge where he, we hold, holds a bunker shot. He started, he started doing like Phil Mickelson things on him. You know, mm. he had two chip ins that were tremendous, you know, the, uh, the hole out, from the bunker and then later on the chip in at 15, which was critical, but you know, it's just started to, to pull, you know, create some space and it. it showed that, you know, he was not going to blink on this particular day. And, and even when he had a few mistakes, um, was clutch, just yeah. did the things he had to do. Um, I, I talked afterwards with his college teammate, Joel Damon, who was hanging around to congratulate him at the 18th green and, and said, you know, this is, this is what he's always done. He's always, you know, making a putt or chipping in. He's, I've seen him do this a hundred times and telling, you know, giving examples of when he, you know, hooped one in, uh, in, in college to get them from regional into the NCAA championships. Um, you know, this was just what he ex- kind of come to get to come to know from, from Nick Taylor. And they, they call him the grease King, greasy Nick. This is, this is what he does. Uh, <laughs> greasy Nick. <laughs> he, oh, man. He, he's got, He's clutch when it when it matters, and uh, you know he he had been number one in the world as an amateur and kind of underachieved as a pro. And yeah, the guy could always putt. I, I think you know this was a good venue for for a, a shorter hitter to uh, you know to play well, and and uh, it was I, I was really impressed with how he held up. Uh, like like Demeglio wrote, um, you know he wasn't the guy everyone thought was going to win this one, but he did what what Phil Mickelson usually does to, to guys it was it was impressive it was impressive that he was able to stay steady and not let nervousness or the moment be too big for him he clearly right. he, he it, looked very comfortable making some putts early will do that uh, yeah i would imagine uh i wouldn't know from firsthand experience but but i'll take his word for it and i think that as he was able to to maintain sort of a little bit of a lead and mickelson never really made the charge and maybe it's a combination of things. Mickelson never charged on the back nine. Like I think everybody was waiting for him to do as Taylor was basically just keeping it together. And you, you thought it was going to come. You thought it was coming. You're, you're waiting for something from Phil. And maybe that was because on Saturday he looked like a Greek God playing that golf course. I mean, he was not hitting a lot of fairways, but my gosh, his wedges were unbelievable. He was chipping in. He was coming in from bunkers. He was, as he said afterwards to Daddy Pepper on the CBS broadcast, you know, I, I'm missing it in the right spots. So I'm giving myself opportunities. They're tough shots, but they could have been a lot tougher if the miss had been in the wrong spot. When I missed, I missed in the proper spot. But he looked so good on Saturday. You're like, oh my gosh, there's no way. Phil will find some more fairways. If the short game holds up like this, he's got it. And it just never happened. The driver sort of betrayed him, and he wasn't able to string it along. And who do you think did the the the, the wind really kicked up? I mean, as you're out there, and we're watching. Yeah, I'm yeah, watching was, on CBS. Did did it hurt Mickelson, or did it help? Um, you know, in some ways, Taylor that that the conditions got as blustery and the greens got as firm as they looked on TV. Yeah, you know, I I don't know if it helped Nick Taylor. I think it was a really difficult you know, difficult stretch coming home. Um, but I think it hurt Phil, especially when he, when he was started driving it poorly, he made a really big mistake. Um, the wind got him on uh, eight, which, you know, you can't, you can't hit driver there. You got to hit, you know, something to lay back a hybrid club or something. Yeah. Yeah. And he went with a two iron and he didn't flight it correctly. And it only went 180 yards and he had, he had two forty plus, to the hole and had to hit another two iron. And I, I asked him about this afterwards. He said, you know, where do you, where do I miss? Where, where can you miss there? Well, you got to miss short. You got to, he, he said he was trying to put it in the, the front bunker. Well, he went long mm. and tried to hit one of his, you know, flop shots. And this time it didn't work out. He, he it ro- ball rolled off the green and he hit a very poor chip and made a double bogey. And, you know, he makes a turn down five strokes and, 
while he got it back to within two going to 15, um, it just didn't feel like it was going to be his day. The, um, the television camera angles on eight do not do it justice. Everybody looks at the beauty of hitting over that gorge. What there is not nearly as much emphasis on, but what is tactically more important is that green pitches from back to front, sort of side back, left back to, to front right, so severely. Um, and it does that because it's got to basically be a gigantic catcher's mitt. You're hitting these iron shots over the gorge, and from a design standpoint, um, you need to be able to stop the ball. It's also on a hillside. I mean, it's going down down in that gorge. The, the, you cannot be above the hole there because if you are and you either hit a putt that doesn't hit the hole, there's nothing to stop it. I mean, it's just going to roll and roll and roll. And certainly if you go long into the rough or into sand, you've got absolutely nothing. That you're, you're absolutely in jail. There, bogey is the best you can hope for. Um, so hitting it, but, but hitting it short and being not aggressive enough, then the gorge itself comes into play. You can bail out left yeah. um, and play for par. You've got an, an, actually an area of fairway that's mowed to the left side, um, which never really comes into play unless you're you know, somebody who's shooting 90 or 100 and you just don't feel like you can carry the gorge itself. But that it, as soon as he goes long there, that's the sin that he knows he can't get away with. So going for a flop shot, I'm like, unless he jars it, there's no way that that ball is going to stop it. There's, abs- there's absolutely no way that that ball is going to stop. Um, I had a chance to play Pebble Beach. I've played it twice. The first time I played with a guy, um, Laird Small, who was – I'm going to get this wrong. I think he was the 2003 – it might have been 2002 – PGA of America Professional of the Year. And um, he was based out of at Pebble Beach. He's a stalwart. He's been there for, for a long, long there, time. Yeah. yeah, super guy. And we played it as a playing lesson, which was great. And he explained to me – that Pebble Beach is essentially death by paper cuts. Everybody gets carried away and they look at the physical beauty of the place. You look at Stillwater Cove, you look at just these unbelievable views, everything we saw on TV last week. But what you're not realizing are the subtle things that the golf course does to put you in awkward positions. And you talked about the sixth, which is the famous par par five. Most people don't realize, especially when recreational players, when you hit your normal drive, you're hitting up onto that bluff. I'm like, okay, well, I've got to get the ball up there. But you're hitting off of a gentle downhill lie. And so it's it's a lot harder than it looks for most of us. When you're hitting across the gorge um, on eight, you know, you've got to get the ball up there. But if you go past the pin, you have nothing. There's all these little subtle things that Phil Mickelson is a five-time winner of this event, knows probably better than anybody else on the planet. Um, but... Yeah, you, there's certain places you certainly sort of just can't miss. What do you think about with sticking on Phil Mickelson for a little bit? What do you think about we're supposed to take away from Phil Mickelson's season so far? I mean, he plays pretty well and gets a top five finish in Saudi Arabia two weeks ago. He comes to Pebble Beach, and you know maybe he thinks he should get it done. I'm sure that he thought he was going to win or had a really good chance to win, and he said afterwards he just got outplayed, and he can live with that. So he has a really good finish at Pebble. Um what are we supposed to sort of think at this point about Phil Mickelson? Because for a while, and this is his first top 10, I think, since he won Pebble Beach a yeah. year ago. What are we supposed to think of him right now? He's He's been, I think he's been, uh, he went through one of the worst slumps of his entire career after, after winning at Pebble last year. He thought he was going to have this great year, and he said, you know, I thought I was going to crush it, and I got crushed. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, you know, he keeps saying that he, he's turned this corner and, he, you know, the weight loss and stuff. I really feel like he lost, he keeps, he talked about how he's figured out his focus and visualization. And that was, that's why he's had these two really solid weeks and back to back. I really felt like part of his problem was his lack of focus overall is focusing on, uh, fireside chats and answering all these people on, on, uh, social media and just just the stuff that he's doing away from focusing on on golf as uh, I think detracted from his game some but I, you know I, I think uh, I, I really you know interested to see how he how he continues to play leading up to the masters that's still the major where I feel like he's got the best chance of winning um, I, I think we're still gonna see some victories out of Phil mm-hmm. I do I don't I don't think he needs to rush off and play the the senior tour just yet, but uh, 
He said he certainly made it clear that he's not in any hurry to get out there. I mean, when he was asked, (laughs) you know, if you don't qualify for the U.S. Open, would you consider the senior open? Because Phil turns 50 in June, and therefore he would, I'm assuming that they would certainly be more than happy to to have him. And he made no bones about it that he's he is not thinking about the Champions Tour. He's not thinking about the senior open. And also, what was your reaction when he said that he would not accept a special invitation or exemption into the U.S. Open, that he wants to earn his way on there or he's not going to play it at all how do what it was what was your react to that well i think it's foolish because hale Irwin won a u.s open taking a special exemption so i wouldn't look uh look a gift horse in the mouth i don't think i wouldn't i don't think that the usga would have given him one um mm. i don't know if he's really earned it you know just a lot, he's got a lot of runner-up finishes but it, it's something that they usually give to a past champion of that event um historically and and they don't give them out very often you know they shouldn't give them out very often and yeah i i I agree um i I like that he wants to earn his way in i think that's no but i think there's also some you know i think there's still some bad blood between him and the usga over the (laughs) uh, over shinnecock and and his reaction you know when he when he hit the putt while it was still moving, while the ball while it was still moving on the green yep. uh, in the third round, and I think you know even with his comments about the the uh, the, the, the new information report. coming out on the yeah. distance report suggests that uh, you know he, he he does not have a uh, a fondness right now for the USGA. No, and and one of the things that like it or not about this sport is that. Uh, you're, nobody, nobody's entitled to anything that they haven't earned. I mean, if you win the Masters, you were entitled to be able to play that tournament and to come back until I guess it's like sixty-five or or when it's sort of the time becomes you know pretty clear. But then you can still come to the Champions Dinner. You still take part in the Par Three contest. You you were a part of that. You've earned that. Um, you earn your PGA Tour card. You earn an LPGA Tour card, etc. Um, you have to earn your right to play in the U.S. Open. You have to qualify. And they, it is completely within the right of the USGA to give out a special exemption in, in cases where they feel it's appropriate. And that's fine. It's their tournament. Like it or not, that's their tournament. But coming in second place six times, in my opinion, does not entitle you to a U.S. Open exemption or a special uh, invitation to play. If they wanted to give it to him, I wouldn't have a big problem with it. But you can't say, hey, like I'm Phil Mickelson. And therefore, I should be a part. Well, if you're whatever, it's it's like that famous line, like, do you know who I am? Like, if you have to answer, ask the question, <laughs> then you're not who you think you are. Um, yeah. And, and I, I admire to some degree Mickelson's stance on it. I think he's going to qualify. I, I think that he'll be able to, to get himself in there. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. It would be fascinating to see if Mickelson would go through qualifying. Um, I'm assuming that he would play Memorial. And yeah. therefore, he said he would. And so, if he's not exempt at that point, then there's the Columbus qualifier, which every year is just loaded with tour pros, and is historically one of the more challenging U.S. Open sectional qualifiers to go through because you've got so many tour pros, and usually you've got to shoot mid 60s for two rounds to have a shot. And um, Mickelson is want to go low; he can certainly do that, but there'd be a lot of pressure and certainly a lot of eyeballs. Um, it would be probably one of the most watched U.S. Open sectional qualifiers since Michelle Wee tried to go through Canoebrook. I think it was yeah. 2006 and qualify. I can't think of anybody that drew any more attention to a qualifier. Um, but tell me a little bit about Jason Day, who had quietly a, a pretty good week. There was a little bit of a chance there towards the end on Sunday afternoon when he was maybe giving himself a little bit of a look towards the top of the leaderboard, but but it didn't didn't work out for him. But as you wrote for golfweek.com, it was a pretty big week for, for Jason Day anyway. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know, Jason Day trying to battle back from his his back injury that kept him out of the president's cup and, and he was uh, very candid about the fact that he, he there were times last year where he wondered how much longer he's going to be able to play this game. He's, he's still a pretty young man at 32 and uh, former world number one. I think he was down to 46 in the world, which is staggering to think how how he's too good, good a that. dominant 
yeah, how, how dominant a run he had for a while in, 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 in uh, 2016, in particular when he, when he won the, won his major. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just think I just, Jason day at that, at 46 in the world is, is like you said, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that he's, that he's dropped that much. He, you know, he and, and Jordan Smith and both of them actually played pretty well at Pebble. Well, but, uh, that was the question I was going to actually jump to is, is, um, who do you think at the end of the year is ranked higher, Jordan Spieth or Jason Day? That's a that's a great question. I think uh, I think I would just go with with Jordan Spieth because I I question the health of of Jason Day. He talked about how he he has to blow a balloon for thirty minutes before he plays to uh kind of activate his rib cage and and he's just he's a he's he's fragile he's a he, fragile he always has been too he's had a figure. lot of injuries yeah. a lot and, and i think one thing that helps is, that's helped him is i think for the first time he's starting to understand that you know he was a guy that had to beat balls and and really uh gained a lot of confidence from how hard he worked and I think he's realizing that, you know, maybe he does, you know, well, first of all, he might not be able to do that anymore. Just the wear and tear of hitting so many golf balls right. is not good for him. And realizing that he, he can still be pretty darn good just just uh, practicing, uh, you know, maybe less but more efficiently and getting the same out of it. And that, you know, his his good game is, is still really good. And uh, I think he showed that he's he's still going to contend in some tournaments. Um, he played pretty well so far in the last couple of of uh, West Coast events, and and yeah, Pebble. I, he's now I think this is the fourth year in a row he's finished in the top four. Yeah. Yet he yet he doesn't have the W there yet. It's pretty pretty uh, remarkable. Hey. Ever hear about the ex-football star who robbed a Brinks truck, then tucked $400,000 under his arm like a football, and escaped using an inner tube? No? Then you'll want to listen to Season 1 of The Sneak, a podcast by For the Win and USA Today Sports. Here, take a quick listen to the man who actually pulled that off. In 2008, a former D1 football star pulled off a robbery so daring and so strange that it went viral worldwide. It was a perfect crime story. There was just one problem. It wasn't the real story of what happened. The Sneak is a new, serialized true crime podcast from For the Win and USA Today Sports. You can subscribe now on Apple Podcasts or get it anywhere you get podcasts on Tuesday, January 14th. I think there's going to be something also, shoot to the fact that his mom, who had was diagnosed a few years ago with stage 4 lung cancer, is it seems like as you reported on golfweek.com that, that she's doing better that the last round of scans that came back were pretty positive that he was because of his injury unable to go back to Australia um and and play on the President's Cup team so she has come over I think she's still here until the end of this coming week she's going to stick around through the Genesis Invitational at Riv um but that her health is good I mean as as you sort of wrote yeah, I- he he was very emotional justifiably when he had to withdraw and he started talking uh, a couple years ago about her condition, just the fact that his mom is getting healthier or at least is is doing okay has got to be a big big load off of his shoulders and off his mind, and that would do some good things for for his golf. Yeah, his father died when when he was uh, you know a teen, uh, not, I don't even think a teenager, maybe He's twelve young. years old. Yeah, and uh, from cancer, and, and his mom dealing with with lung cancer. And uh, she asked, supposedly, from what I've been told, in uh, you know remission right now, and you know comes over to get checkups from from doctors over here, and wanted to spend some time with her grandkids, and so has been on the West Coast with the family, and it was really neat to see them, the family, uh, taking some photos with Stillwater Cove in the background after he came off the yeah. course, and obviously disappointed that I think this was uh, this was really there for the taking. If he could have had a had a little bit better of a day, but his putter really betrayed him on Sunday. Struggled, struggled with the short stick. Made a couple early bogeys at uh, four and five that I think probably took the steam out of him. But then, and then you know he had a couple birdies on the back, but but then uh, you know a couple three putts 
um, really did him in and, and, you know, fourth place finish and, and really a non-factor in the trophy hunt. But uh, I think there's, you know, I, I, I really like to see him get back to, to the type of game he was playing when he was at his best because he, when he, when he's playing like that, he's, he's really fun to watch. Um, you know, seems to be a real good guy and enjoy watching him play when he's at the highest level. And, and you don't want to see a guy yeah. have his career. You know, it, it, he, he's a guy who really looked after Tiger, you know, came, came up in that era and, and mm-hmm. idolized Tiger. And, you know, I remember how big a thrill it was for him to first play with him over in Australia. And, and uh, you know, they've developed a good relationship. And, and I feel like his trajectory has seems to follow Tiger's in some ways a little too much now with the back injury. And you, you could just see him eventually having to have some surgery or – realizing he said I, I just hope i can make it to 35 and that's not that far off so um you know this is a guy you, you, who has a, a, a hall of fame type resume in the works but if he only finishes with one major and you know he has one of players but one major that would be um i think that's underachieving um, underachieving for, yeah, yeah. For, for what we thought i i always was struck when he was really at the height of his game he had the best blend that i've seen of the power game that, that you sort of now need to have, um, and putting. He was yeah. he statistically had the best putting season that any golfer in the shot link era has ever had. There's only there's only one player that's ever finished a season with a strokes gained putting average over one, and that's Jason Day. Um, and he's been at one of the best and at the the elite level of putting for five or seven years. And, you know, it's interesting that, that his putting this last week at Pebble Beach did not, you know, hold up. Maybe it was the Poana Greens. Maybe it was wind, you know, sort of whatever. Like, okay, that's that's a one-off. But his blend of length off the tee, big hitter, toweringly high iron shots. I and mean, he can get it up there with Tiger and Rory with the irons. But his putting was always so much better than Rory's or Dustin Johnson or just about anybody else. I mean, it was really... People forget it was Jason Day and Jordan Spieth back in 14, 15, 16 that were, and really 15 and 16, the best putters in the world. And they, they were head and shoulders above the other elite players out there. And that putter, you know, got him to number one with the rest of that. It was a, it was a magnificent, an unbelievable blend of skills. And it would be a pity if we sort of got robbed of what his potential could be if he's healthy, if he's in a good mindset, if everything outside the ropes can sort of be in a good stable place and his health is good, then he's, he's as good as anybody out there. I think now, again, there's a lot of injuries that have taken place. There's a lot of miles on those tires. So it'll be interesting to sort of see where it's going to go. Speaking of a lot of miles on the tires, uh, we've now gone almost 45 minutes without really talking about Tiger Woods. He's going to be in the field this week at Riviera. What, if anything, are you expecting this week from Tiger Woods? He, he played, so so, uh, I suppose. You know, I mean, he he wasn't terrible with this or that at uh, at Torrey Pines. Obviously, didn't get the W. It's interesting how a couple years down the line, our expectations for Tiger have all already changed back to you know winning and all that. What what are you looking for from Tiger this week at Riv? Well, wow, it could be such a such a great story if he were to storybook type thing. If he were to win and get break the the PGA Tour record for victories that he shares with Sam Snead at the place where he made his PGA Tour debut. Exactly. Yeah. 1992 at age 16. uh, You know, that would be quite the story. However, reality is this Riviera has been his kryptonite. There is no course that he's played as many times on the PGA Tour without winning than Riviera. And, you know, he knows it. He he used to avoid playing there for, for, because he just, I struggled to play there, play well there. And, uh, I, I, I want to see him. I want really want to see him win, win there. I think it'd be a great story. Um, and I like the way he's driving the ball right now. I, I think he could be an odd. The, the one thing we've got nine of the top 10, everybody, but Webb Simpson playing, uh, the field is stacked. So, yep. you know, he's going to need his a game. I don't think he's winning with just, uh, some of his ordinary stuff and just willing the ball into the hole. I think he's going to need to be, um, you know, have a really good week, kind of like a Zozo type week. But I think it's it's so interesting that you're right. He has not played well. He hasn't won this golf tournament. He's played it a bunch of times. He skipped it 
for a long time. It should be perfect for him. He can hit driver, but there are a lot of places where you don't necessarily have to hit driver. Right. It's a classic venue that is a shot maker's sort of a course. Well, what do I mean by that? If you look at the guys who've had historically a lot of success there, Adam Scott plays this golf course brilliantly. And he has a very similar game, um, the Butch Harmon sort of background and stuff or whatever you want to make of it. Um, his, his game matches up really, really nicely with Riviera. Bubba Watson is maybe the, the most extreme shot maker on the tour, has had a lot of success at Riviera. Um, Tiger can shape shots and, and work the ball around, manage a course better than anybody in the world. So for me, it's so interesting that he hasn't won at this venue because I would think, having grown up in Southern California, he understands the, the weather, he's going to understand the green complexes, he's going to be able to think his way around there, he knows the course very, very well. There's no reason why he shouldn't be successful. I'm not saying he's going to win. You talked about like the, the the field is absolutely stacked, but I would anticipate and I would expect him to be top ten, to to be you know in the mix on Sunday. Now, if Rory goes off and and shoots 65, 65 on the weekend, that might just be too good for anybody to catch. Like, okay, you tip your hat and you move on. Tiger should yeah. play well at this golf course, don't you think? I mean, it sets up from what it asks of a golfer. Tiger can answer all the questions that Riviera asks, in my opinion. Yeah, I think, you know, sometimes you have just a mental block with a place where you just you just have trouble figuring it out. And, and I, for whatever reason, he has uh, he has really struggled at, at Riviera. Um, I, I've never really seen him play all that well there. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Where uh... – where are you going to be playing would, golf next after you get a little bit of sleep? What's what's the next golf? Where, where's your next round? Well, you're not, you're, you're not going to like this, but I leave Sunday for Cabo. It's just you know, so really, Cabo? Yeah, because because why not? Right? It's it's February. You will have been home for about seventy two hours. It'll be time to leave and go someplace <laughs> warm again. So good enough. Listen, shoot, get yeah. yourself some rest. You know, it's, I do it for the golf week readers well and and for those golf week readers who have like you know some sort of a complex it's at adam shoepack on twitter um s-c-h-u-p-a-k if you want to follow along with the fun with it uh are you on are you on instagram like the rest of the kids yeah i don't use it quite as much i'm, I'm more of a twitter guy your, t- your twitter feels yeah. like i'm duplicating efforts but uh yeah, I'm Golf Shoe Pack on, on Instagram. All right. Well, check out at Adam Shoe Pack on Twitter. Follow along. Shoop, I appreciate you coming along here to the uh, Four Press. Have a great trip. All right. Thanks for having me. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of. Uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.